Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. And this is the first of what will hopefully be weekly episodes discussing the new season of Star Trek Discovery. It's back! I'm so happy! I know! I feel like I've been waiting forever. <laughs> it's been a while. I know it's like a normal break between short seasons. It was but... a completely normal break, but it's still, you know, there was so much anticipation that was building, and so the past, like, for pretty much January... <laughs> Pretty all, of, much. all of January was very like, okay, why isn't Discovery on yet? <laughs> that is exactly how I felt. But you got to go to the premiere event in New York. Tell I me did. all about it. Oh, it was amazing. I was there as a photographer for Trek Corps. And, I love them. Uh, yes, a, a wonderful site that everyone should frequent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was amazing there was an actual red carpet and all of the actors came by and we got to interview them and take pictures and then on the other side they had lined up a bunch of fans to meet with them so it was it was absolutely wonderful very enthusiastic everybody was so excited to be there the cast the producers Jeff Rooster the composer and Gersha Phillips the costume designer the makeup guy, like everybody was uh, was thrilled to be talking about Star Trek. I would have died if I had met Gersha Phillips. I love her work. I, I know. I, I, um, we, she was our, our last interview and like they were literally like turning the lights out and sending everyone away. And we were like, no, we have to speak with Gersha Phillips. So, the, I mean, she's just, everything she does is amazing. And then I also found her at the party after this screening and I I was like so Amanda's tiara reminded me that I love every single piece of clothing that Amanda wears and you, I needed to tell you that what did she say about Amanda's every day around the house tiara she loves to uh you know to create looks for um different people the way that every character has a very specific uh, way of presenting themselves so yeah that makes sense I'm just thrilled that like Amanda's way of presenting herself is apparently like you know Vulcan lounge princess princess. (laughs) I'm just so there for that I was already calling both Sarek and Amanda like my Vulcan fashionistas because (laughs) literally everything they wear is amazing it's just so they're making a statement Walk-in wardrobes are very logical. Pre-Tiara, my, my favorite Amanda look was the very brief one that she was wearing in the presentation of metal scene. All she does is, you know, sit and clap, but she has, like, opera-length gloves on. And I know! her hair is piled up, and it's like, that's a completely different look from what she was wearing with the umbrella, the amazing see-through umbrella, which I also love. So she had like a, an, a costume just for clapping in the galley. Don't you? And it included, you know, satin red opera length gloves. Sometimes I, I would like to see Amanda just kicking around in her ratty old pajamas and <laughs> slippers. She doesn't own those. This is like a this is a Padme Amidala level of I'm gonna sleep in silk p- pearls and a tiara. 
And no one's going to stop me. And no me. one's going to stop me. <laughs> well, Sarek's not. Clearly he loves her. That's right. He's one of his few redeeming qualities. <laughs> oh, but I know. You're so hard on Sarek. I love Sarek, but he is the worst. I <laughs> love him because the he's the worst. I know. <laughs> But this, like, Amanda's Around the House tiara was actually, like, fourth on on my list of things to talk about because the very first thing we get after the recap are the words space, the final frontier, and they're said by a woman. I know. I got chills. Like, seriously, my breath was taken away. It, and, the, like, the shots of real space. Yes. <laughs> footage while Michael was saying space, the final frontier. And you have to understand that I was in a movie theater with the entire cast of Discovery sitting a few seats over from one of the producers. <laughs> it was amazing. Just just the fact that that's how it started. It was like the culmination of my life. <laughs> I, liked, I liked that the opening story was an African myth too because a lot of the time Star yes. Trek really digs deep into like your classics, your Romans, your Greeks, and that's all great. But there's a lot more to Earth than yes. that little tiny corner. And she does really good voiceovers. I know. I, she, she was just she's really talented. That you have like it's hard. I feel to do to convey everything, all of the emotion in a voiceover without making it sound weird. But she did wonderfully with all of her logs and and various voiceovers in the first season. And this one was just like. Starting, starting with Space the Final Frontier and going into the like fairy tale mythology, <laughs> it was incredible. It was a really wonderful way to open a new season and to also reinforce that despite the presence of Captain Pike and Spock and what have you, Michael is still the protagonist. Yes, very much Which so wasn't really a concern of mine but I know a lot of people were afraid that she was being pushed aside yeah I mean I think that they were marketing the new people more just because they're oh new. yeah I, like I don't I don't really necessarily blame them for centering the people who were new to the story but because the person who's most new to the story is is Christopher Pike who is not only a middle-aged white man he's a middle-aged white man that we had already met so yes it was it was iffy but I mean I wasn't I was never worried that he Anson Mount was also saying you know this is this is Michael's story and I'm just a side character in her story so I wasn't worried but I am glad that they really like pushed it this way yes Yes. Before it came out, like a couple of weeks ago, there was a review, and I think it was on Trek Movie, where the reviewer complained that there were too many scenes of people praising Michael and talking about how great she was, and uh, that, that there was too much meanness towards Connolly, the science officer, a uh, mansplained with blue shirt. And uh, I think, I, I have a really high opinion of Trek Movie, I think it's a great website, but I think that review and those complaints says more about the reviewer than what was actually on the screen. I saw something about Connolly that just, I mean, there was a lot of irony in this statement. Don't, it was just like a, a random comment. I don't even know where on social media or something. But it, the complaint was that he only exists to make and quote unquote Mary Sue Burnham look good. And I was just like, 
I there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Because like, I would like to say the f word. I was. I it's it's just like women have literally been saying this, especially black women, for the entirety of media and fiction. Yeah. And, like. Like, A, it's wrong, and B, it's just so, the, the irony just is dripping. <laughs> I, I can't even handle it. I mean, yeah, really. And really. also, like, I, I, if I never see the words Mary Sue again, I'll be happy, but... Oh, agree. I can't handle this idea that if, if you're a, a woman protagonist, you're a Mary Sue. From, from what I understand, that is the definition according to... The Connollys of the internet. <laughs> it's funny. I saw a thread on Reddit this morning, and it was counting down until number one is declared a Mary Sue. So, Absolutely. I guess a not all Reddit fan bros are terrible, but also that is inevitable. All right, we're out of order. So, so let's, let's, let's. We are back. totally out of order. Okay. Uh, space the final frontier. Michael is still the protagonist. Sarah is still the worst. Amanda has an around the house tiara. Ah. Pike, he's not a regular captain, he's a cool captain. What did you think? So, I mean, I feel like I've said this uh, previously on one of our episodes that I was, you know, I was fine with with Pike, but I also didn't really care. Yeah. And I've I've been saying pretty much everywhere, he has to win me over, he has to win me over because I, I have no strong feelings. But I've, you know, he's winning me over. I was, I was into it. It was interesting you know, in the in the first the first time I watched it, I watched it twice. The first time I watched it in the in the big theater with everybody, and you know, very exciting. Having just interviewed him, or seen him being interviewed, and been like an arm's length away from the man, he's very charming, and he gave a great interview, which um, I think is up. I, I'll send the link. That really uh, went into, you know, the kind of character that he wanted to create, which was second act Pike, because we sort of, in the, the cage is first act Pike, and then Menagerie is third act Pike, and what this Pike is in between. And the cage was sort of a turning point for him? Yeah, and, or, yeah, I mean, it was, it, what he said was that, you know, he's not the same person he was, he's not the same actor he was in grad school, um, and he's not the same person he was in high school. So it's like this idea that that he has, he's grown, that those, that the events in, in the cage, yeah, changed him. Mm. And so we, we know like breadcrumbs, but he's trying to create the, uh, the middle part of the piece. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting. And I liked the, the, the explanation and so I was excited to see how it was coming and he I mean he really just he he really it's he it was a very charming performance I think he really played this first episode as you know I'm gonna win you over (laughs) like that there was definitely that that was part it was in the dialogue it was in the acting it was in the presentation to really say like you said, I'm the cool captain and we're, and we're going to get along and, I, and everything's going to be great now. It's, it's interesting because he was almost, for me, almost 
too charming because Lorca was very charming. Lorca could charm the birds out of the trees and that's not a trait that I really trust. So I was wondering if maybe he wasn't overcompensating and almost veering into the same the mm. same territory that Lorca was in. Um, but then there was the bit where uh, he thinks Michael is about to argue against rescuing the crew of the Hiawatha or any survivors and she has to correct him. And I think that was a really good way of showing his flaws, that he's, he's coming in with a certain amount of assumptions about this crew and how, he knows how they were treated by their last captain, but he doesn't know them as people. He's just sort of going on, on assumptions and I assume what Cornwell has told him. I assume Cornwell because who else? So, so it's not that he's a bad guy, but he wasn't maybe – I think he was trying yeah, too hard. Yeah, and, and I think that that's – a great flaw like that to, to oh yeah again Anselmout said that that of course he has flaws and and that's what makes him a great character and a great character to play and so the second time I I saw it just on my laptop in by myself and my cat <laughs> and mm-hmm. we got to the scene where uh, right before right before the end right before Michael goes on Enterprise and they're like at the window and there was a very mm. Bruce Greenwood Pike feel to that scene. Yeah. And I, and I liked that. I liked that I could sort of see the two varieties of Pike that we've seen coalescing, I guess. Yeah. Because as we discussed in our first episode about the cage, Greenwood Pike is almost a different kind of character altogether. And it's cool yeah. to see the two ideas merging and of course Alex Kurtzman had something to do with Greenwood Pike as well like there is that consistency there I'm I'm you know he's not my favorite yet or anything but uh Mm. but I'm on board with him and I'm I'm excited for him to be in this story I was going to say I always had this idea of Pike as a really introspective character and it was only watching The Cage with uh recently for this podcast that I realized how unusual the circumstances surrounding the cage were and so it did it makes sense that he is a bit more gung-ho and outgoing and um less intellectual than I had always considered him but at the same time I have 20 years of a headcanon pike that I'm trying to separate myself from so I don't really know who pike is yet I'm, I'm open to it I'm along for the ride but I don't know yet who yeah. he is Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to say I'm one over, but I'm being one over. I am in the process. He's in the process mm. of winning me. <laughs> I'm, I'm into it. Yeah. My feeling now is that he's no Lorca, but I understand most people would consider that a good thing. <laughs> it's pretty divided in the fandom, I will say, about you know, Lorca. He's pretty divisive. I just really like Jason Isaacs. Oh, yeah. I, I love Lorca. <laughs> I think it was a amazing performance. I really, I ended up really liking how it all went down. Um, I was worried for like ever, but I, I'm happy. I'm pleased. So Tilly is sort of, you know, she's stepped into the command training program. She's on her way, but she's also uh, backslid a bit back to nervous talking and yes. a little, well, nervous, which I really, I really liked. That is absolutely me. I like, I will, I will do that. It felt very real that, she, you know, 
improvement is not always linear. Yeah, and what what I I really like that she's I I call her delightfully awkward. Yes. It could become like a shtick really easily, something that was overdone and 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 fake, I guess. Like not it would it doesn't it wouldn't come off as sincere. Sincere. That's the that's a good word. But it her performance is so well done that it really it still feels like a fresh new take on Trek like you know something new that we haven't we haven't gotten to experience and it's just uh, it's like a breath of fresh air yes also I appreciated that even though she's awkward and she's trying too hard it's not humiliation humor like this is not a story about Tilly being embarrassed Pike is really cool with her. Pike sets her at ease. Pike understands that this entire crew is really nervous about having a strange new captain come out of nowhere. Her interactions with Michael are wonderful. Well, always. I'm so happy to see that relationship get uh, highlighted right there in the in the first episode back. And when she when she said "lie to me," like that was just the sweetest. <laughs> it was just like, ah. On the plane up to my sister's place, I read The Way yes. to the Stars, the new tie-in novel by Una McCormack, and I really enjoyed it. I think it's the first really good Discovery tie-in so far, and uh, all it needed was a bit of an edit. But uh, Tilly here was very, very consistent with 16-year-old Tilly as we find her in that book. Like, she's learned and she's grown, but everything she needs and everything she does, she's a very consistent person. Obviously, I assume McCormack was aware of, you know, what was happening and probably had script access yeah. and whatnot, but, you know, it was a good book. I'm, I'm just well. glad that uh, Tilly gets to have, be part of the family drama shenanigans that I am, have high hopes for this season. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, because the, there's, there's the family on the crew, you know, there's definitely a crew as family dynamic that has always been there. That yeah. is being built on, and then it's there's these like extended little branches into the family that they came from, and how it all fits together. Yes. And I just think that is that like I am so here for that. I, I do love a mixture of found uh, found family blending yeah. with family of origin, and the Discovery family. It's a bit dysfunctional, and they're all weird nerds who are very traumatized. Yes. but I love them exactly. They're very lovable weird nerves. Having said that. <laughs> Who have been traumatized. <laughs> having said that, I feel like Stamets was making the right choice in leaving Discovery. And obviously he can't leave. You know, he's Anthony Rapp. He's an essential member of the cast. But I don't think that the leaving to go to Vulcan was a bad decision on his part. I think it's a very healthy decision. Yeah. I was... I was sorry when the dark matter uh, uh, literally sucked him back in. <laughs> so he can be re-traumatized. Yeah, like, just give him some time. Like, I am glad that the story has slowed down enough that we get to see him beginning to grieve because I think that's important and I think even setting aside the pacing issues at the end of the last, uh, at the end of the season, it was too busy a time to deal with all of that. And that's a very real thing. You know, a lot of people can just push everything aside and deal with their emotions right. at a more appropriate time. But it's good that he has that time now. 
I know a couple of people were, were mad that Hugh isn't back already, but I think, <coughs> sorry, if this is the story you're, tell, you're telling, and it's certainly not a story I would have told, you don't want to cheapen it by bringing him back but, yeah. before the consequences of his loss can be Right, I would have been really upset if they skipped to, and he's back, because if, if it had happened in this episode, or really, like, before episode three, at least, I really feel like they should have just done it last season. Like, you don't, you don't leave everybody hanging yeah. in with dead and gone Culver for a year if, he, if he's going to come back immediately. And as you say, there are no consequences to his loss. Like, what is, what is the point of any of that? It's just playing with our emotions. Yeah, it's cheap. So I don't want it to be, like, drawn out forever, but I also don't want it to be just a magic fix. Yeah, and obviously pacing is an issue that this show has had problems with. So I'm not completely uh, <laughs> confident that it will be perfect. But as it is, like, they've committed to this storyline. I don't like it. It's not what I would have done. But now that they're, they're on this course, yes. they might as well do it as well as it can be done. Right, yeah. Stranger things have happened. The whole opera-ness of, of, uh, of their relationship entirely, but like the way it was used in this episode was beautiful. And you know, I really like that you know, he's like, I'm going to connect to something that I didn't understand when he was alive, but I have come to appreciate on different levels and like... Like, I was, you know, he's moving forward, but in, in a artistic, dramatic. It's a more nuanced depiction of grief than simply sitting alone yeah. in the darkness and being sad. And I also, I, as you say, like I feel badly that he doesn't get to go beyond Vulcan because I think a, the Vulcan would be a good place for him to do that. Everybody would leave him alone. They wouldn't require him to show or hide his feelings i feel no vulcans honestly seem pretty chill about tasteless displays of human emotion but also they wouldn't demand that hugh be nice you know he seems because he was such a jerk in in the beginning of season one you still i still get the impression that being nice to people even though he's mellowed out it's a choice that he has to make and maybe it would be okay if he went to vulcan and could just get the job done and devote his emotional energy and his emotional labor I suppose we call it these days yes to dealing with yes. his grief yeah I mean then he comes back and lives among among <laughs> humans and is completely insufferable again but you know swings and roundabouts all right I really liked how how Pike treated Saru I loved it yes it was taking your the fears uh that the audience and the characters have that pike is going to take over everything and and put everyone in their place <laughs> and uh but he was really i love that saru is like the boy scout who knows all of the rules and can just like whip him out at a moment's notice when he's done that a lot and and it's you know it, it at first made him sort of difficult to get a handle on his character because yes. it seemed like a rule book who was always like butting heads with with Michael but by the end of season one uh he was coming into his own as a character separate from Michael and separate from 
I guess Starfleet or it's he gave that the speech about what Starfleet really is and, and then he started the yes. like, VR Starfleet stuff. So I think that all along we were supposed to see him as mm. sort of the epitome of a Starfleet officer. But I didn't realize that at the time. It's only like in looking back that I figured that out. And it was with this episode starting with, you know, again, his just saying oh, that's regulation, blah, 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 and these are the three things, and which of these three things? And I was like, whoa, Saru, you really know your stuff. And so... Yes. I, but, and then I, I remembered that he's always like that, and I was like, oh, that's the point. <laughs> I was like, all of a sudden I understood Saru better, and, and I liked him more. And I really appreciate Pike didn't just slap slap him down and say, you know, whatever, I don't care about your regulations. Like, that's what, you know, like, a Kirk would do. <laughs> He'd be like, Or a Lorca. Yeah, or a Lorca. And, and so, you know, and I'm, I'm not disparaging Kirk by saying that. Or, like, Janeway would also be like, whatever. No, <laughs> like she no. did it constantly to Tuvok. So I know for a fact that Janeway would be like, that's nice, but the point is over here. But Pike really listens. I know a lot of people really wanted Saru to stay on as captain for season two, but I think he had barely been a first officer for six months or, or a little bit more than that uh, when, when Lorca was lost. He's very, still very inexperienced in that role, and what he really needs is the mentorship of a captain who, like Giorgio, is very respectful of him and admires his skills and recognises his best qualities and can help him improve where he's weaker. And I think Pike is good for that. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, I, Saru is not ready. Like, uh, as much no. as Michael is also not ready, but she was ahead of him. I don't know. Like, I just see the, the two of them as they're the same and yet different, um, and it's interesting to compare and contrast. And they did have Giorgio for... A long, you know, I don't know how long, but long time. Saru for longer, apparently. But, yeah. like, Michael, she was, she, like, Michael was her number one, so she was uh, grooming her for that, and then, like, sort of grooming Saru to take over for Michael when Michael moved on. So, like, she, he hasn't had the I'm grooming you for captaincy part of the, yes. the mentoring <laughs> stage. Yes. And the one time, like he, like he was in, in uh, command during Choose Your Pain, and he like, you know, pulled up like he was like Siri, show me captains, and like yeah, yeah. But he was not, he's not ready. If he, if he has to Google how to how to captain, then he's yeah. not ready to be the captain. Even though he gives great speeches, and even though he grows a lot during the season, he still hasn't like as you say, he hasn't had the mentorship. Mm. Of yeah. you know, this is this is where you are to do it. He has the capacity, but he hasn't learnt the skills yet. Exactly. Yeah, I actually uh, to sidebar into the shorts for a moment. They're finally on Netflix around the world, so I can finally officially right. say that I've watched them legally. <laughs> uh, and and so much of Saru changes once you understand that he's not just from a culture that's outside the Federation. He's from a pre-warp culture. And in 15 years or so, he's gone from this fairly simple, low-tech lifestyle to commanding a starship. Yeah. Like, A, 
he is so smart. He has learned so much. But it makes I think that makes him a really good mentor for Tilly, who has no shortage of mentors, of course, but I think Saru's unusual background means that he questions assumptions that people who grew up in the Federation may have. Yes. I, I mean, I, he, he, there, there are many depths to his character that I am really glad that they're exploring all these different things and, and that pulling back the layers so that we get to actually, you know, understand who he is and, and how he fits in. Mm. I didn't really, I didn't get his culture at all. And it's sort of like, oh, like no one knows his culture. He's the only one who knows what it's like there, you know, yeah. and, and his perspective has has to have been altered now that he has traveled the stars and seen all these other cultures and like it's i just you know wow and also it explains why in season one he would get so shirty when michael would talk about him as if he was one of her xenoanthropological subjects because that's sort of where his people are in the galactic um food uh, Food chain is really the wrong word. That is very tasteless. <laughs> I am so sorry. But, you know, it, it's like when people of Indigenous cultures interact with anthropologists and, you know, that, that can be really fraught because there's a real othering in anthropology. Yes. And, and it's really cool. Not only that Michael has that background, which is super valuable for plot reasons and an interesting thing about her, but that we also have Saru to push back and go, hi, I am actually a person and not just your subject, and I am not just a representative of my species. Yes. Wow. So amazing. <laughs> and just think, like, in season one, for half of season one, he was just the guy who was kind of prissy and always down on Michael and could never get past his anger at her for getting Giorgio killed. Right. Like, and he, now he has so much depth. There's, and there's so much co- there's so much more context to even that. It's like, of course he yes. was upset that, that she got Giorgio killed if Giorgio was the one who introduced him to basically his entire life now. And the other <laughs> thing is, when did he discover that Giorgio, as a human, was an apex predator? And did he feel betrayed? And... Did he have those feelings return this, when, when he met the Emperor and realised that the Emperor eats Kelpians? <laughs> Poor Saru. He's amazing. I don't know why I have Saru feelings. I know. I, like, I really, I, he, he really grated on me for the first half of season one. But, and, and you know, and I can't tell if it was on purpose to make me care more about him now or if like if it was just they weren't quite sure what they were doing yet and so which is fair like you know it it takes a lot to get there at that point in the season we were firmly on michael's side and i think we were seeing him purely through michael's eyes yeah and when we saw him on his own it was in less flattering moments like googling captains and giving orders to torture tardigrades and maybe that was like him going, okay, I have to be a captain. Most captains are human. I need to think like a predator. Right. That's, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's so much there now. It's like, whoa, that's, it's just amazing. Yeah. And yeah. that he was, oh, he was man. overcompensating. He was being, yes. you know, I'm, I'm going to be the predator because that's the only way that, you know, that, that I've been shown. Again, he, he hasn't had the... The mentorship 
uh, for anything. He had like, yeah, he had Thorka, mm. the ultimate predator. <laughs> so, what's you know, poor guy? He's he's in trouble. Oh, my precious sheep in wolf's, <laughs> wolf's clothing. But beyond beyond Saru, the bridge crew got names. I know. Most of them, I have to point out, already had names, but some of them got new first names. So that's nice. Yes, and uh, I mean that was when you know we we're, we're got the sheet of who was who, which actors were available for interviews and stuff, and it was like even mm-hmm. on that they didn't have their names and their first their <laughs> any they had the names that we knew. They didn't have anything new, and I was like. Are they going to get names? That is like my number one question that you know you're not allowed to ask because mm. it's spoilers. But that yes. So you weren't you weren't able to ask why we have a new actress playing Ariam? Uh no, and actually we didn't get to to speak with her. She she was uh oh, she was not available to us. I'm glad they kept the original Ariam though. I saw her in a crowd yeah, scene because right. I don't know. She seemed like a nice actress. She has a good face. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so new like new Miriam. She has a name. I'm sorry, I don't have it at the tip of my tip of my tongue. No, me neither. Um, she was there, and like the bridge crew were there, and they and so like they're a part of the cast, and it was it was great. But she wasn't one of the ones that we got to interview. So. I'm sure we'll find out eventually. I have this because I'm really contrary. I almost didn't found myself not wanting to get to know the bridge crew as promised because so many people were complaining, oh, it's not really Star Trek if we don't know the bridge crew. And and there was this re- weird thing on Reddit where people were going, oh, Michael is such a Mary Sue and she's such an uppity cow, but I'm not racist. I just think Awashikon is a much better character. And I'm like, really? Because she doesn't really do anything yet. I'm sure she's great. The actress seems amazing. But, you know. Because she doesn't have a character. And I think, like, again, if if a woman has a character, she's a Mary Sue. And if she doesn't have a character, they can imprint whatever, you know, implant whatever they want onto it. Like, they can create a character for that that is their perfect, which I would like to point out, is a Mary Sue. But whatever. Yes, yes. Well, it's funny because I did see some comments on Twitter from men complaining that uh, Tignataro's Jet Reno didn't smile enough and was too too much of a sour bitch. So, you know, even even middle aged women played by lesbians are apparently meant to cater to the whims of men. Seriously, I I have seen only accolades for her. And her character. It serves me right for looking at the replies to a tweet from the official Star Trek account. Like, don't do that. I should not leave my bubble. And most, I should say, these were just a couple of blips that caught my eye. Most people were very complimentary. And there's a lot of make Jet Reno a regular, which I really feel. (laughs) So, yeah. She's a cranky, sarcastic, middle-aged supporting character who is a woman. So I love her. (laughs) She, I mean, I, I, she had an amazing introduction. I think that that was wonderful. I loved the way they did it. What I've seen is a lot of people comparing her to Bones, Dr. McCoy. Yes, yes. And I would also say to the way Scotty is introduced in the first Kelvinverse movie. Yes. It has that kind of feel to it. There were parts of this that were like... There were a few things that reminded me 
Which makes sense. And and I, I'm just going to say, I like those movies, so I, <laughs> whenever I compare anything to those movies, that's a compliment. Right, It's, it's right. meant to be celebratory. Just to be clear. <laughs> but... <laughs> She was amazing. I she like jury rigged a crash ship to keep as many people alive as possible, and she didn't think that was cool or amazing at all. She was just like, "That's my job. That's what I do. What are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm a Starfleet engineer." Yeah, yeah. It's what I love about Star Trek that even the engineer on an unimportant medical frigate is this genius of engineering and improvisation and it's completely improbable but it is so star trek like miles o'brien can and would do this exactly he would complain and he he knows that julian would hang shit on him afterwards for you know rigging up his weird heart thing but he would do it yes it was yeah it was great she was she's so good (laughs) i hope we see more of her I hope we learn more about her as a person. I think Tignataro did a great job. I understand she's got her own separate career and can't be a regular or anything, but if she becomes like a long-term recurring character, I would be pretty happy with that. I also didn't get to interview her, but I can confirm that she is in additional episodes. Yes! I also just think it's cool that she's a cancer survivor, she's had a double mastectomy and no reconstruction, and her her uniform wasn't padded at all. Yes. Like, there's... No in-universe explanation for any of that. We assume that breast cancer is a thing of the past and all, but there was no attempt to make her look like anything other than the person that she is. Yeah, which is wonderful. Everybody should go watch her Netflix stuff, because it's great. <laughs> Just I don't really watch a lot of comedy, but I really liked her, so I'm thinking of giving it a go. Did you see the documentary about her breast cancer? No, that's another thing that I've been kind of eyeing, that- going... Should I? Shouldn't I? Because I'm not a big comedy person either. I have to be sort of in the right mood for that. Mm. But the documentary is really good um, to get that story. It's done. I will give it a go. It has a, it has a lot of it has a lot of sadness mm. and drama, but it's but it's great. <laughs> also uplifting. You mean, I mean, a, a, a documentary about having cancer <laughs> has sadness and drama. Shocking, I know. Yeah, didn't expect that. <clears throat> So I, I understand you have a list of fortune the- fortune cookie theories. Well, I don't know if they're theories so much as these are, I think, these are ideas of how it could be interpreted. I think that any of them could, like, not that they're right or are going to be proven right. Like, I don't think that's no. the purpose of it, but that they're all valid. They all work for that analogy. Which is really just what a fortune cookie is for, basically. Right. Yeah. So the ones that seem to be the most popular are, of course, Culber. Yes. Coming back. Because it's sort of like, he's in the opening credits. <laughs> he's going to come back. Yes. So not, uh, nor all losses are eternal. Yes. It goes, how was it? Not every cage is a prison, nor all loss eternal. We also, because it's a fortune cookie... And because there's a Discovery Time novel that reveals that uh, Prime Lorca is or was at some point alive. Yes. Imprisoned in what we assume is the mirror universe. Right. So, and Cornwell had her line that 
her Gabriel is dead, and so... Which means he's that, alive. You know, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's exactly where my head goes. It's like, if someone says they're dead, if they're presumed dead and someone says they're dead, they're definitely alive. So... Who knows where, where where he is or when he could come back, but I do feel like that that interpreting it as a shout-out to Lorca is definitely reasonable. That was my first interpretation, and then I was deeply embarrassed by all the, all the ideas that everyone else had, which weren't purely Lorca-related. Because at first I was like, well, obviously he's evil, he's littering his, his ready room from beyond the grave, but also... <laughs> You know, who else would a fortune cookie be talking about? And then people pointed out that the cage, the cage right. connection. The cage, the cage definitely references Pike yes. himself and sort of like in a meta way, Star Trek. So, yeah. uh, so which is cool. And, it, and in that way, it's, I feel like it's, it's uh, again calling out the fan bros and be like, get over yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, not, not that I want to keep beating that drum but i want to keep beating that drum so what you're saying <laughs> is the fortune cookie is a spoiler for the picard series <laughs> yeah. that was not on my list but why not it, it could be you know like, you know more people who uh, uh Giorgio is of course she's mm. dead but is coming back and and uh so that's a, a fair interpretation that i've seen and then there's the trio that are uh, clearly important in in whatever the uh, Red Angel stuff that is going on, which are Spock and Michael, and yes. then the person that unites them, Sarek. So I don't know. I feel like this is Amanda's season. I but it's, it's definitely uh, Amanda, but I she is not a loss or in a cage. So Amanda doesn't really fit the fortune cookie, whereas mm. Sarek totally totally has lost Spock and. Is in a cage. He's in a his, cage of unemotion. Of, yes. <laughs> so, so therefore, if it it fits Eric, um, but I think that Spock and Michael both, you know, I don't know what happened between them. We'll we'll find out. But they've clearly lost each other, and I do think they are both in cage slash prisons. Yes. Of their of their own as well. Sort of the, uh, the, the prison of your childhood and, and the stuff you need to get past to become yeah. fully formed as an adult. Ooh, which I, uh, I have to bring up the two uses of interesting transition. Oh, yes. Which were clearly linked because they were both Michael and someone who knew Spock talking about Spock mm. right before. So... In the Sarek and Michael scene, which we can discuss as well, but I want to <laughs> say my, my transition. In the Sarek and Michael scene, at the very end, uh, Sarek says, at the moment, you know, look forward instead of backward. Focus yes. on, on the now. And and then the doors close and open. Yes. And she go, goes from her quarters to the bridge. And then at the very end, again, at the window there, Pike says basically the same thing. Pretty <laughs> much. He's saying, you should, you should go over to the Enterprise, but we're going to go have fun and make a little noise, and uh, you should be excited about that, really. 
Yes. Yeah. Again, the it changes from window on Discovery to she's in front of Spock's quarters on the Enterprise, and these were a very that was a very clear, interesting directorial choice that we're supposed to take something from. <laughs> the The messages were similar. the The circumstances were similar. That's the message. I feel like the message of the season is going to be look forward while looking backwards. <laughs> I just, I liked the way I was like, interesting directorial visual choice, Alex Kurtzman. I like it. I found it a little bit clumsy, but I liked what it was doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Yes. That, I mean, it was, it was maybe overplayed a little. <laughs> this is not a subtle series. Yeah, it was that, it was, so it was, there's, it lacked subtlety. But I liked the idea of what they, what was what was happening there. Yeah. And and I like I do like when things are visual. I like that. Oh, I have a a a, a thing that was more subtle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the bridge, uh, Michael says, you know, no, we we don't like leave anybody behind. Yes. Um, and then when they're in their little blinking potty, whatever things, uh, reiterates, you know, we, we save people. That's what we do. Yeah. And then later on, she's left behind and has to run. And, uh, Pike eventually, uh, cat, you know, saves her. Yes. And he comes back and he doesn't say we save each other. <laughs> and I was like, so happy. Because it was it was there, and I was like, I knew exactly what was going to happen. I was like, Pike's going to show up and save her. Yeah, yeah, it That's, wasn't. But I was expecting the terrible line of, you know, yeah. hey, didn't, you're the one who told me. <laughs> but he didn't say it. it. They trusted us to understand what was going on, and I appreciate that. Yes, showing, not telling. Thank you. <laughs> the rule of three, but... In a less head smashy way. Right, right. Maybe not subtle, but, you know, more subtle than it could have been. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I really liked that this was not an episode with a villain. And so far there's no big bad for this season. There's a mystery and there might be villains along the way, but so far, you know, there's no war, there's no uh, ranting demagogue or would-be emperor it's just you know going out to find out what's happening and I think that's yeah a really welcome change of pace from season one like I loved season one I enjoyed the war plot but I think you can't maintain that tension indefinitely yes and I liked how the idea that they aren't friends with the Klingons but they're not they're not a problem was no. was uh, it really came across. I feel like, you know, when, when uh, Michael says uh, there was an armistice and Jet's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's crazy. Hmm. But but based on Sarek's line that he just sort of calls up Chancellor Rallel and is like, hey, was, what do you think about these red things? And they're like, hey, I don't know. So, so that it was like they are at the point where he can just confidently ask you know, do you know anything about this and and believe the answer? Yeah, it's a sort um, of... Was nice. <laughs> early Cold War situation because that's what it's going to settle into because ten in 10 years' time, you know, it's right. the 1960s, sort of. Right. And, and that's where they're at. 
It's a ceasefire, not a peace treaty, but it's enough. Right. It's enough to have confidence that they are, uh, you know, not telling all the truth, but also not lying. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. They may not trust each other, but yeah. I wonder if Laurel knows that Sarek was the one pushing the blow-up Kronos plan to the civilian government of the Federation. <laughs> just, just, you know. Hmm. <laughs> I can't wait for Spock to find out about that because, that you know, he's the guy who organises the eventual Kitima Treaty and all of that. And, you know, I feel like not everything Spock does is to call out his old man, but quite a bit of it. <laughs> Most of it. Yeah. Oh, poor Zarek. He wants to be better. He wanted to teach Spock about empathy, so he got him a human. (laughs) The way, okay, I just have to say, the way that James Crane delivers that line, that word, empathy, I was just like, I love you. (laughs) You're so like, oh, Zarek, what is wrong with your brain? But it's... You know, he, he's just like, obviously, I was like, this was the perfect plan and just went wrong because you people won't do what I want you to. <laughs> it's just. Maybe he should have started with a puppy. It's just so funny. He's like, oh dear. Poor Sarek. He just doesn't know how to people. people. He just is really bad at peopling. I don't understand why Amanda lets all this happen. And I'm like, I, I love Amanda. But is she drunk all the time? Does she spend her days sorting out her gowns and tiaras and not pay attention to the, the children her husband is just tucking under his arm and bringing home? <laughs> I mean, she she reads to them. She's, she, she takes care of them. She gives them tender, loving care. You know, when when needed. And yes. And she does the best she can. <laughs> like, I mean, clearly, like, Sarah and Amanda, I just love them so much. And I, I think about their relationship all the time. <laughs> because it's so, it's like, it can only be based on crazy, infatuated love. <laughs> like, there's no other explanation for their relationship. Honestly, and I think they made a lot more sense in the 1960s than they do now. She just she loves him so much and she wants him to do better too and she's like she's trying to teach him empathy. And I think <laughs> I think that that was Sarek's logic. I have learned so much through knowing Amanda. I can't find Spock a human wife yet and you know there's to Pring and whatnot. Oh, he needs a sister. Hey, this here's is, here's one. Yeah. Do you do you go to a shelter? Do you? Like, and, and the thing is, like, that he knows. Like, he tell Amanda's like, "What happened to her parents?" Is like the worst thing possible. Like, he knows this. He knows that she is a damaged, like, yeah. girl. Yeah. And, and and like they share a mind meld or whatever. Like he he's been in her head. And, and she's still a part of him, like, hanging out there. And yet... I think, I think one, he must have genuinely cared about Michael as a child and genuinely wanted to do best by her. And I think his, 
he and Amanda just have some really massive blind spots. And I think, I think that's common for most parents and they're doing their best and, you know, you do your best and sometimes your kids end up neurotic Vulcans at humans and whatever Cyborg is. And also, that, I mean, there is there was so much affection in that scene between them. Yes. Like, and and the way that they were both sort of looking out for each other with regards to Spock. Like, I really liked that the whole Spock and Sarek's really, everything that we got in this episode about Spock and Sarek's relationship was kind of from Michael's point of view. Yes. <laughs> or, you know, serving her story. Like, I really liked that it wasn't centered on them at all. Yeah. Like, even the parts that weren't about her were still about her. And so I really liked that. To bring but, us full circle, she's still a protagonist. <laughs> right. But I just, he, like, like, he offered to listen to her, you know, whatever, whatever your secret is, I am, I'll, I will listen to it and, and I will, I will, you know, take your burden or whatever on with me as well. And he, and that was, I felt... It's like he's he's doing these little baby steps to try to repair <laughs> his relationship with Michael. Yeah, he could not have done that immediately after Lethe. That that would not. Right. That is not where he was at the time. He's learned, and she's like she's really treating him. Like, I don't know. I I really like the idea that that of of his three children, Sarek actually gets Michael the best, and like. They, they have this interesting bond that he, like, even when he makes up with Spock, is still not really there. I mean, maybe it's there, we don't get to see it, but I, no, I, I don't would think it's much more likely that Spock doesn't have that empathy. Spock <laughs> straight up says in Unification that he never mind-melded with Sarek. Right. They hadn't spoken for years before Sarek died because they argued about the possibility of making peace with the Romulans and Sarek said it couldn't be done, so Spock went off to prove him wrong. Yeah, so so that relationship is never fully resolved. Prepared. If, it, if it was ever great to begin with, which I feel like, no. Because... Sarek had a lot of expectations. Yeah. And and Cyborg didn't meet them. Michael, his expectations were Mike for Michael were quite different. And Spock did his own yeah. thing. And more power to him. Oh, I just love this family. I love them all. Sarek is 90 years my- old and he should know better by now. <laughs> Speaking of Cyborg, that's my brother's little pet theory that uh this the person that, that Michael thinks his Spock is actually Cyborg. How? <laughs> Why I would imagine do that? Like, <laughs> Which is ridiculous. <laughs> and then, uh, I mean, I think that they're like, I don't know. He didn't tell me his whole theory because I was like, I think there are licensing issues and they can't actually use Cyborg. So I don't think that's true. But also they like to lie to us. So yeah. <laughs> they could. But I think it would be. Like, in extremely poor taste to have Ethan Peck be on the I'm Spock publicity tour and not be Spock. Like, that's not a Lorca situation. That's a horrible situation. Yeah, I think that's not even a Javid Iqbal situation. Just asking the Nemo family to perpetuate that, I think. Yep, it's tasteless. No. Yeah. So, so, So that's a no. 
But uh, it was... I, I watched Star Trek V for the second time in my life over the Christmas break. I watched it on Christmas night, which is very festive. And it did make me think that there is no way Spock has never gone camping and there is no way he has never heard of marshmallows. And I choose to believe that it was Amanda who took him camping in her most glamorous camping tiara and introduced him and Michael to the ancient custom of roasting marshmallows. I mean... <laughs> what would she wear? I like just this is why I love Amanda so much because she's like me. I've gone camping and I have been, you know, I have worn completely ridiculous shoes camping <laughs> and and been called out on it by my family cuz they're like no one brings those shoes camping. No one like what is wrong with you? So I feel like Amanda Camping would have one of those Harry Potter tents that looks quite humble on the outside, but it is a palace on the inside. And, and yes, so while the kids are works. around the campfire, she's just in in her tent, sitting by the pool, sipping a margarita and reading a book. Oh. Should we wrap up? We're at an hour. <laughs> Let's wrap up with Amanda's Glam Camping. I would kind of like to title this episode um, Camping Tiara, but <laughs> I feel like it's a little off topic. A little bit off topic. Oh, well. Call us CBS. We have some marketing ideas. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Pod. You can, in fact, rate and review us on iTunes. Five-star reviews help make us visible to the algorithm that rules everyone's lives. If you want to say anything less than a five-star review... Keep it to yourself. You cannot support us on Patreon or like us on Facebook. You can find us online at antimatterpod.tumblr.com, including links to our social media and credits for our theme music. If you do not Tumblr, you can also find us at antimatterpod.podbean.com. Please send vaguely positive thoughts in our direction and join us next week for more discovery. 